Section 19 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 12. Paris in 1870. July, August, and September. Part 1. As soon as relations became strained between France and Germany, according to the term used in diplomacy, the King of Prussia ordered home all his subjects who had found employment in France, especially those in Alsace and Lorraine. Long before this, those provinces had been overrun with photographers, peddlers, and travelling workmen, commissioned to make themselves fully acquainted with the roads, the by-paths, the resources of the villages, and the character of the rural officials. In the case of France, however, though all the reports concerning military stores looked well on paper, the old guns mounted on the frontier fortresses were worthless, and the organization of the army was so imperfect that scarcely more than two hundred thousand troops could be sent to defend the French frontier from Switzerland to Luxembourg, while Germany, with an army that could be mobilized in eleven days, was ready by the first of August to pour five hundred thousand men across the Rhine. The emperor placed great reliance on his mitrailleuse, a new engine of war that would fire a volley of musketry at once, but which, though horribly murderous, has not proved of great value in actual warfare. Towards the Rhine were hurried soldiers, recruits, cannon, horses, artillery, ammunition, wagons full of biscuit, and all manner of munitions of war. The roads between Strasbourg and Belfort were blocked up, and in the disorder nobody seemed to know what should be done. Everyone was trying to get orders. The telegraph lines were reserved for the government. Quartermasters were roaming about in search of their depots, colonels were looking for their regiments, generals for their brigades or divisions. There were loud outcries for salt, sugar, coffee, bacon, and bridles. Maps of Germany as far as the shores of the Baltic were being issued to soldiers who, alas, were never to pass their own frontier. But while this was the situation near the seat of war, in other parts of France the scene was different, especially in Brest and other seaports. These towns were crowded with soldiers and sailors. The streets were filled with half-drunken recruits bawling patriotic sentiments in tipsy songs. And now, for the first time since the Empire came into existence, might be heard the unaccustomed strains of La Marseillaise. It had been long suppressed in France, but when war became imminent it was encouraged for the purpose of exciting military ardour. Every day in the provincial towns the war fever grew fiercer. The bugle sounded incessantly in the streets of any place where there were troops in garrison. Regiment followed regiment on its way into Paris, changing quarters or marching to depots to receive equipments. Orderlies galloped madly about, and heavy ammunition wagons lumbered noisily over the pavements. Everybody shouted, A Berlin, and took up the chorus of the Marseillaise. The post offices and telegraph offices were crowded with soldiers openly dictating their messages to patient officials who put them into shape, and it was said that nearly every telegram contained the words, quote, Please send me. End quote. Alas, poor fellows, it is probable that nothing sent them in reply was ever received. Parisians, or residents in Paris, all believed at that time in the prestige of the French army. Only here and there a German exile muttered in his beard something about Sodoa. On July 27 all Paris assembled on the boulevard to see the Garde Impériale take its departure for the frontier. This imperial guard was a choice corps created by Napoleon III at the outset of the Crimean War. It was a force numbering nominally twenty thousand infantry and three thousand cavalry. It was a very popular corps, and the war with Germany was popular. Consequently, the march from its barracks to the railroad station was one continued triumph. 
At every halt the Parisians pressed into the ranks with gifts of money, wine, and cigars. "'Vive l'armée!' shouted the multitude. "'A Berlin!' responded the troops. And now and then, as the band struck up the Marseillaise, the population and the troops burst out in chorus with the solemn, spirit-stirring words. At the head of this brilliant host rode Marshal Leboeuf, who was minister of war and military tutor to the Prince Imperial. After the departure of the main body of the corps, large detachments of cavalry and artillery which belonged to it were expected to follow. But they remained behind in the provinces, because Lyon, Marseille, and Algeria, all centres of the revolutionary spirit, could not, it was found, be left without armed protection. Therefore only a portion of the crack corps of the French army went forward to the frontier, a fact never suspected by the public until events a few weeks later made it known. Paris was jubilant. The theatres especially became centres of patriotic demonstrations. At the Grand Opera House, Aubert's Massaniello, called in France the Muette de Portici, was announced. For many years its performance had been interdicted under the Second Empire, the story being one of heroic revolt. The time had come, however, when its ardent patriotism entitled it to resuscitation. Faure, the most remarkable baritone singer of the period, suddenly, at the beginning of the second act, which opens with a chorus of fishermen inciting each other to resist oppression, appeared upon the stage bearing the French flag. The chorus ranged themselves to right and left as he strode forward and waved the tricolor above the footlights. The house broke into wild uproar. Cheer after cheer rose for the flag, for the singer, for France. Quote, the violence of the applause, says one who was present, continued until all were breathless. Then a sudden silence preceded the great event of the evening. In clear, firm tones, Faure launched forth the first notes of the Marseillaise, and as the first verse ended, he bounded forward, and unfurling the flag to its full length and breadth, he waved it high above his head as he electrified the audience with the cry, aux armes citoyens, and subsequently, when in the last verse he sank upon one knee, and folding the standard to his heart, raised his eyes towards heaven, he drew all hearts with him. Tears flowed, hand grasped hand, and deeply solemn was the intonation of the volunteer chorus following the call to arms. The month of July was drawing to a close when the emperor took his departure for Metz, where he was to assume the post of generalissimo. With him went gaily the young prince imperial, then fourteen years old. Their starting-point was the small, rustic summer-house in the park of Saint-Cloud, the termination of a miniature branch railroad connecting with the great lines of travel. There the father and son parted from the empress, who removed the same day to the Tuileries, where she administered the imperial government under the title of empress-regent. It would have been injudicious for the emperor at this time to risk a public departure from Paris. The Parisians were so full of confidence and enthusiasm that he might have received an inconvenient ovation in advance. Skirmishing had been going on along the frontier between the French and German outposts since July 21. On August 2 the campaign began in earnest. After luncheon on that day, the Emperor and the Prince Imperial set out by rail from Metz and returned to Metz to dinner, having invaded German territory and opened the war. They had alighted at Faubach and proceeded thence to make a reconnaissance into the enemy's territory near Zabruck, a small town of two thousand inhabitants, where, strange to say, an international peace congress had held its session not many months before. This place had an ordinary frontier garrison, and lay two and a half miles beyond the boundary of France. General Frossard, under the Emperor's direction and supervision, led on his men to attack the place. The first gun was fired by the Prince Imperial, who here, as his father's telegram that night reported to the Empress, 
received his baptism of fire. The garrison returned the fire, and then, having lost two officers and seventy-two men, it retired, leaving the French in possession of the heights above the town. Poor Prince Imperial! Some harsh lines concerning his first exploit were published in the London Spectator. Quote, how jolly, papa! How funny! How the blue men tumble about! Huzza! There's a fellow's head off! How the dark red blood spouts out! And look! What a jolly bonfire! Wants nothing but coloured light! Oh, papa, burn a lot of cities, and burn the next one at night! Yes, child, it is operatic, but don't forget in your glee that for your sake this play is playing, that you may be worthy of me. They baptized you in Jordan water. Baptized as a Christian, I mean, but you come of the race of Caesar, and thus have their baptisms been. Baptized in true Caesar fashion, remember, through all your years, that the font was a burning city, and the water was widow's tears." When these lines were written, how little could any man have foreseen the fate of the poor lad, lying bloody and stark on a hillside of South Africa, deserted by his comrades, and above all by a degenerate descendant of Sir Walter Raleigh, who should have risked his life to defend his charge. A day after the attack on Saarbrück, compact masses of Germans were moving across the frontier into France, and the next day, August 4, a division of MacMahon's army corps was surprised at Wissembourg, while their commander was at Metz in conference with the Emperor. The French troops were cut to pieces, and the fugitives spread themselves all over the country. The battle had been fought on ground covered with vineyards, and the movements of the French cavalry had been impeded by the vines. In this battle the French were without artillery but they took eight cannon from the enemy. The Prussians, however, being speedily reinforced, recovered their advantage and gained a complete victory. Wissembourg, a small town in Alsace, was bombarded and set on fire. There seemed no officer among the defeated French to restore order. They had never anticipated such a rout, and were, especially the cavalry, utterly demoralized. The French army was divided into seven army corps, the German into twelve. Each German army corps was greatly stronger in men, and incomparably better officered and equipped than the French. The Germans began the war with nearly a million men, the French with little more than two hundred thousand on the frontier, though their army was five hundred thousand strong on the official records. The habit of the war office had been to let rich men who were drawn for the conscription pay four hundred francs for a substitute, which substitute was seldom purchased, the money going into the pockets of dishonest officials. The two hundred thousand French were stretched in a thin line from Belgium to the mountains of Dauphiné. A German army corps could break this line at almost any point, and throughout the whole campaign the French suffered from the lack of reliable information as to the movements of the enemy. On August 6, two days after the defeat at Wissembourg, the Battle of Wurt, or Reichshofen, was fought between the German corps d'armée under the Prussian crown prince and the corps of MacMahon which was completely defeated, and only enabled to leave the field of battle in retreat rather than rout, by brilliant charges of cavalry. The French lost six mitrailleurs, thirty guns, and four thousand unwounded prisoners. On the same day the German reserves retook Zabrück, and put to flight General Frossard's division. After these reverses, Napoleon III proposed to retreat on Paris and to cover the capital. This also was the Council of MacMahon, but the Empress Regent opposed it strongly, considering it a movement that must prove fatal to the dynasty. She even refused to receive back her son, and indeed it did not seem unlikely that the good people of Paris, who ten days before had cheered clamorously their beloved Emperor, might have torn him in pieces, had he come back to them after such a succession of disasters. 
On the 7th of August, the very day after the Battle of Wörth, while MacMahon was retreating before the victorious army of the Prussian Crown Prince, the Parisians were made victims of an extraordinary deception. A great battle was reported, in which the Crown Prince had been made prisoner, together with twenty-six thousand of his men. All Paris turned into the streets to exult over this victory. Every one rushed in the direction of the Bourse, where details of the great victory were said to have been posted. In every street, from every house, people were summoned to hang out flags and banners. An excited crowd filled up the Bourse, many men clinging to the railings, all shouting, singing, and embracing each other. No one for a long time had any clear idea what the rejoicing was about, yet the crowd went on shouting and singing choruses, waving hats, and reiterating the Marseillaise. The carriage of Madame Marie Sasse, the prima donna who was on her way to a rehearsal at the Grand Opera House, was stopped, and she was requested to sing the Marseillaise. She stood up on the seat of her carriage and complied at once. Quote, there was profound silence, wrote a gentleman who was in the crowd, when she gave the first notes of the Marseillaise. But all Paris seemed to take up the chorus after each stanza. There was uproarious applause. The last verse was even more moving than when Faure had sung it, on account of the novelty of the surroundings and the spontaneous feeling of the people. There were real tears in the singer's eyes, and her voice trembled with genuine emotion as she came to the thrilling appeal to liberté. At the same moment, Capoul also was singing the Marseillaise in another street, and in the Rue Richelieu the mob, having stopped a beer-cart and borrowed some glasses from a restaurant, were drinking health to the army and the emperor. Quote, All this time, says the American, who mingled in the crowd and shouted with the rest in his excitement, it never occurred to me to doubt the accuracy of the news that had so stirred up Paris. For the newspapers on the preceding days had prepared us to expect something of the kind. All at once, upon the boulevard, I was aware of a violent altercation going on between a respectable-looking man and a number of infuriated bystanders. He seemed to be insisting that the whole story of the victory was untrue, and that dispatches had been received announcing heavy disasters. I saw that unlucky citizen hustled about, and finally collared and led off by a policeman, the people pursuing him with cries of Prussian but some time later in the day some persons in a cab drove down the boulevards with a white banner inscribed, The author of the false news is arrested. This, however, was not the case, for the news was never traced to any person. The mob, as soon as it began to believe that it had been the victim of some stock-jobbing operators, rushed to the Bourse, determined to pull everything to pieces, but the military were there beforehand and it had to content itself with requiring all householders to pull down the flags which two hours before it had insisted must be hung out. The Parisians were not easily appeased after this cruel deception, and took their revenge by spreading damaging reports about the government of the Regency, especially accusing the ministers of basely suppressing bulletins from the army, that they might gamble on the stock exchange. The chief of the cabinet, Émile Olivier, was very nearly mobbed but he pacified the people by a speech made from the balcony of his residence. He was at the time really unaware that more than one defeat had been sustained. Hour after hour alarming reports kept coming in, and at last, on August 9, the fatal news of three successive defeats was posted all over the city. Soon an ominous message, sent by Napoleon III, revealed the full horror of the situation. Quote, Hasten preparations for the defense of Paris. End quote. The greatest dismay prevailed. The chambers were summoned to an evening session. The legislators were guarded by cavalry from the mob which surged round the chamber. Olivier and his cabinet were forced to resign, and a new cabinet was hastily installed in office, 
calling itself the Ministry of National Defence. Its head was Count Montauban, a man seventy-five years old, who had gained the title of Count Palikao by his notorious campaign in China in 1860, when he sacked the Summer Palace at Pékin. M. Thiers had pronounced him far more of a soldier than a statesman. He was in command of the Fourth Army Corps at Lyon when summoned by the Empress Regent to take up the reins of government. But in the course of the unvaried succession of misfortunes which made up the history of the French arms during the month of August, the public statements of Palikao proved as unreliable as those of his predecessor. His favorite way of meeting inquiries was to say oracularly, quote, If Paris knew what I know, the city would be illuminated. End quote. Confidence increased after the Empress Regent had proclaimed a levée en masse. There were no arms for those who responded to the call, and most of them had to be sent back to their homes but it was considered certain that the mere idea of a general call to arms would intimidate the Prussians. Indeed, there was a popular delusion, shared even by foreigners, that the Prussian soldiery, on their march to Paris, would be cut to pieces by the peasantry. The conduct of the peasantry proved exactly the reverse of belligerent. The penalties inflicted by the invaders for irregular warfare, and the profits made by individuals who remained neutral, were cleverly calculated to render the peasantry not only harmless, but actually useful to the enemy. Meantime, the French were rapidly evacuating Alsace, and preparing to make their stand on the Moselle. General Failly's corps of thirty thousand men, which had failed to come up in time to help MacMahon at Wörth, were in full retreat, without exchanging a shot with the enemy. The Germans continued to march steadily on. The country was systematically requisitioned for supplies. The maire, or other high official of each village, was informed twenty-four hours beforehand how many men he was expected to provide with rations, namely, to each man daily, one and a half pounds of bread, one pound of meat, a quarter pound of coffee, five cigars, or their equivalent in tobacco, a pint of wine, or a quart of beer, and horse-feed. If these demands were not complied with, he was assured that the village would be set on fire, and after a few examples had been made, the villagers became so intimidated that they furnished all that was required of them. End of section 19